Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And uh, we are, well, we're delighted to be talking to someone um, from the other side of the Atlantic. After all, we um, had a very good week of Thanksgiving podcasts and we couldn't fit um, uh, our next guest into that week. So um, here she is anyway, because she's absolutely fantastic. James, who are we talking to today? Today, Al, we are talking to Sarah Kovner and uh, particularly pleased uh, that Sarah is joining us today because she's done an awful lot of work on to the experience of being an allied prisoner of war of the Japanese, which all we really know is that it was a hellish thing to be. Um, uh, but it's also good because you and I, you know, we're a bit guilty of being slightly West-centric in our bias. Ever so slightly. <laughs> Ever so slightly. <laughs> and we're always saying, God, we must do more on the Far East and more against Japan and more about Burma and more about the Pacific and more about everything war with the japan related and here we are yeah. we've got sarah on board and she can come sort of you know put us right on that to a certain extent welcome welcome sarah thank you for Thanks joining for us now um, um i'm right in uh, uh, i think i'm right in saying this there's a lot of received opinion about the experience of allied pow's in 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 the second world war in this country we we um have very much been fed um via via films like bridge, bridge over the river Kwai and things like that very much a clear picture of what happened to allied POWs and and with that goes an explanation which is Japan was a was uh, in the grip of a sort of Bushido cult idea that there were warrior ideas about uh, surrender being a disgrace and therefore that's why prisoners of war were treated so badly is uh, am i am i right in thinking a that's way too simplistic and and B, there's probably <laughs> it's maybe even wrong. Well, I, I think you're correct in saying it maybe is too simple an, an, an explanation. Um, I wouldn't say it's completely wrong because certainly uh, terrible things happen to people in places all through um, East Asia and Southeast Asia. But I think it's too simple. And that's what I argue in my book. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, I, what sort of strikes me is, is, is just the sort of extent of those that were killed i mean if you were if you were uh, a british or american prisoner of war i mean this obviously does not apply to red army um prisoners of war but if you were british um or american and you were uh, uh, in captivity at the hands of the germans chances are you're going to be fine i mean very very few people died in captivity very you know even with the kind of the, the you know the death marches at the end of the war and all the rest of it in the long trek but if you were australian 
you know, your chance of getting through was kind of, you know, I think, you know, more, I think you've, you've, you've written that more, more Australians were killed in captivity than were killed in combat. Uh, and it's, and it sort of rises something like kind of, you only had a kind of sort of almost 50% chance of survival if you're American. I mean, that is terrible, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And as you just said, it's, it's even more striking for Australians, which is why the captivity experience is such a great, important, great experience uh, for them in recounting the war. When I say great, obviously, I mean, important part of understanding their war. But um, what was so interesting to me is, as you led by saying, you know, that the so many people died and the but it's it's not quite as simple as you say, because not every because the experience really depended on where you were held captive, where you were taken captive. And so that's what uh, I'm interested in exploring through my work. So there isn't a uniform Japanese approach to to, to um, how they treat the prisoners of war. Uh, then is, is is that what you've is that what you've found? Yeah. So um, that's exactly what I did find um, because, like you, I was much more more uh, I knew much more. I was way more familiar with the Bridge on the River Kwai or this uh, movie or kind of experience or Unbroken, which is a book that's quite famous in the United States and it's also a film directed yeah. by Angelina Jolie, but. In fact, there were, this wasn't a universal experience. There were prisoners held in camps. Um, Korea is probably the best example of this, where the experiences weren't that way. And so what I tried, what I was really interested in is, why was it the case that some people were treated better than others? And I mean, after all, as again, as you said, if some people's experience of captivity wasn't so awful, then it can't be the case that there's a simple uniform explanation for captivity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 after all, the Japanese, the, 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 the holding uh, allied prisoners of war is only one part of the picture, isn't it? Because they've been they've been fighting in China for for the best part of a decade, haven't they? So there's whatever's going on there. There's there's all of Indochina that they've uh, invaded and captured. And um, I mean, uh, and, uh, as James says, we're very Western centric. I mean, I don't know, for instance, uh, in in Vietnam, for instance, what the what the Japanese did did with did with, did they displace the ruling class? Um, how did they go about that? And, and and all the things that you know, invading invading forces often do, and then how that fed into their tr- the treatment of the different um, uh, uh, populations. Because after all, you know, the, the thing I do know about is that the, the Japanese run an Indian army. As a as a counter colonial force themselves, and so they're 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 wearing they're wearing several hats, aren't they, in the treatment of the people that they run into in their various invasions? That's exactly right. The experience. The one thing we can say about the experience of captivity is that it wasn't the same for everyone, um, even for the yeah. same people, depending on where they were held. So, as you say, the Japanese are fighting in China, and more than that, they had held uh, much of East Asia and Southeast Asia as colonial territory, right? So yep. they're in Korea since 1910, and Korea is really considered part of Japan by the Japanese at this point. The people, as, as awful as the outcomes could be for some uh, from Americans and Australians and British and Canadians during the war, those who were not considered former allied POWs, so for example, Filipina and Filipino uh, men, in, men and women in the Philippines um, or laborers uh, working on the Burma Thai Railway who were not British there, they suffered much more. And beyond that, one thing that was really surprising that I found when I was looking at these camps is that the people held in um, what we would 
consider prisoner of war camps. That's how they were supposed to be run according to the Geneva Conventions. Many of them were civilians, and civilians are not supposed to be held in prisoner of war camps. So, so right. why why is it that that Filipinos and and Southeast Asians are treated worse than British? Australian American competence is is it just racism? I mean, you know, is what is it? Um, well, racism is part of it. I think there's racism on both sides, and that's very interesting to me. But I think that um, the Japanese, or at least parts of the Japanese government, were seeking to uphold the Geneva Conventions, which they had signed, if not ratified, in 1929. So people in the foreign ministry, for example, um, were trying to do this, and. So uh, again, as awful as the experiences that allied POWs were having, the Japanese were at least seeking some of the time to make sure that prisoners held their uh, experience good conditions. In fact, even though it's so hard for us to understand now, conditions in some places in Fukuoka and some places in Korea were considered better by the people living outside the camps. In Korea, uh, men and women tried to break into the camp in Korea, which is a really strange thing to be thinking about. but. Um, Japan conditions, wow. a lack of food, um, poor harvests, that was going on in the, in the early, I would say like in 1944, 1945 in Japan. So there just wasn't much there in terms of food. And in fact, people, um, servicemen and also sailors and soldiers in the Imperial Japanese forces, um, were treated really badly. But I mean, you know, if, if, if. If there isn't a sort of code of conduct, uh, you know, where does the sadism come from? Where do the stories of the beatings and the kind of, you know, and the torture and the the kind of sort of really savage punishment for kind of petty, petty crimes and the kind of bayonetting? And, you know, where where does that all come? You know, if that isn't part of their kind of doctrine, then then how is that? come to be and, and who's kind of sanctioning that and, and how high does that sanctioning go? Um, I think that's a good question. The way that I think about it is that Japanese prisoner towards allied, uh, excuse me, policy towards allied prisoners of war was made at several levels. There's the top level of the government, right? What's their policy? And then there's what's going on on the ground and what happened to any particular captive was run, what, the person in charge of a particular POW camp was the military commander in charge of that area. And as the military commander, what they're trying to do is win the battle, not take care of the the captives. And then on the lowest level, you have the people who are responsible for taking care of, or watching really, rather than taking care of um, the captives on the ground, so guards. And one thing that is important to think about, for me at least when I think about guards, is that's a really low status job uh, in the Japanese Imperial Army, as it is in most armies. And so who do you put in the low status job? You put your colonial men. Um, and in the case of, right. so that's like the Koreans or Taiwanese. And um, so these people were not treated very well by the people above them. They had very little training. Um, in fact, the Korean guards who are mostly sent to working in Southeast Asia are told to, and this is where the racism comes in, or at least part of it, are told to treat captives with physical violence um, because that they're the people above them. And, you know, so you, I think earlier we talked a little bit about Bushido, right? And um, Bushido is something that changes over time. The ideology of Bushido changes over time as the military education works in the Japanese army. And, um, and so this is, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it there. <laughs> so, so, so it's kind of analogous to, um, if, if, if you like, uh, the, the Nazis using local um, 
uh, people to staff their camps because because the, the 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 a lot of the a lot of the um, death camps in in Eastern Europe you've Lithuanians you've Latvians you've uh, even Poles working in some of those camps so there's a sort of similarity. There's a sort of similarity there, and also, as you say, you don't put, you don't put your best people on these jobs, do you? You don't put your, your boldest and brightest. No one with any ambition wants to be doing this either. So you're not getting the best motivated people. But is there is there like a, is there a top down grip on the on what's happening in the camps? Are they reviewed? Are they do, do they send out inspectors and make sure that they're being run properly and all that sort of thing? So one of the most surprising things to me um, is that even as captives are such a tremendous part of our experience as um, Americans, as British, as Australians, they're not really a very big priority as captives for the Japanese government. So they're important for, in terms for, and they argue about the importance of them. When I say they, so that somebody like Prime Minister Chojo says these captives should be used for labor, whereas Foreign Minister um, Togo is arguing we should be used, we should uphold the Geneva Conventions. And so that what is the most tragic thing about this whole story to me is how little, how, how um, little matter of concern that prisoners of war were for the for the people at the highest levels. And um, I'd also say in terms of, we were talking a little bit earlier about the J- Imperial Japanese Army and policy towards prisoners of war. It's impossible, I think, to not think about this no surrender policy, which you're probably familiar with, right? The idea that uh, soldiers in the Imperial Japanese Army were instructed that they should never be surrendered, that they should never surrender, they should never be held captive, they should do anything. This is uh, becomes a formal policy in 1941. Um, and I think it works more as a norm and an influence rather than as a law um, in, in terms of um, how people act because and I guess the way I'd make that argument is to think about, so when we in the United States took Japanese servicemen as prisoner, they quickly turned around and cooperated with, with the United States when they were held in camps in um, California. Uh, but so it was, it, it was like, a, it was clear instruction that soldiers were not to be taken captive. Where did that order originate? Where, how, did, how did the thing like that come about? Because uh, uh, because is it is it is it to 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 make sure the men don't give up their li- lives cheaply? Is it is it a purely is it purely functional or is it symbolic as well? I think it's symbolic more than functional. I mean, perhaps it's functional as well. But there was uh, we were talking about China earlier in the 1930s. Um, there is fierce fighting in China earlier than that in. Um, at the end of World War One, in the Siberian intervention, you have uh, it yeah. becomes at that time, and this is a change. It, it becomes ever more desirable to be taken as captive. So, it's a change in military policy that I think gradually becomes more and more until um, 1941 when it's put into policy. And, and what happens if you're? What happens if you're? You don't. You know what? What happens if you? Aren't killed and don't and do surrender and then are recaptured, uh, uh, are re, you know <laughs> retaken by the Japanese army. Do you, do you, do you then do you get a tremendous uh, telling yeah. off or do, you know? I mean, or, or is or that do, the least you, of it? Are you or is that the least of it? You executed. I mean, how does so it? So that's work? why I think it functions in this way as a norm and an influence, right? Because I, I thought about that. Like, so say that you're some Japanese serviceman who gets captured and then you escape or you make it back to Japan. People, uh, then your family would ostracize you, which actually was a tremendous punishment. It wasn't, uh, you know, and so that people didn't really want to do that. They would, in in um, 
so in Nomohan, for example, they would try and uh, retreat into, they would stay there rather than come home to Japan. Right. Because the, the shame was so great that rather than rather than face that shame. Because after all, in the Soviet Union, uh, the, 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 you, you, you'd get gulagged for, for, for something like this, wouldn't you? Is the, is the, was the mechanism they had in, in, in the USSR. Yeah, so it's a norm but, but, rather than, than uh, anything else, I think. Understood. And presumably, okay. presumably, I mean, a, a lot of the hardship comes from kind of, I mean, you know, you always see these pictures at the end of the war in 1945 of these people all emaciated. Now, obviously, partly that's that's cruelty, but partly that's just because by that stage of the war, Japan's spending 88% or whatever it was of its GDP on defence, and there there just isn't any food. I mean, that's that's one of the big problems, isn't it? It's why they go to war in the first place, because they haven't got enough of anything, because they're rapidly urbanising you know, uh, um, they don't have enough food within their own islands. And so they've got to go and get resources from elsewhere. And obviously, that's all kind of drying up. And there's just not enough food to go around. And, and on top of that, you've got the kind of the logistics when you're an island nation like Japan, of corralling all these prisoners and getting them into places and transporting them from A to B in these kind of ghastly prison ships, these marus and and all the rest of it. And, and a lot of the, the deaths come from disease by being kind of at the bottom of a hull of a ship, aren't they? And, and, and just not having enough food by the end of war, rather than being kind of sort of, you know, whacked around with bamboo canes and bayoneted and stuff. That's exactly right. Um, so it's, it's lack of food. It's disease dependent on, dependent on theater, right? So if, you, if uh, somebody's held capture in a place where there's more malaria, then they would be subject to that. Uh, part of it is, as you mentioned, you know, just transportation. That's the way many, many people died. Uh, part of it is uh, the way in which they were transported, but part of it is Allied bombing of ships going from the Philippines to, um, yeah. right. to Japan. Um, and logistics as you mentioned is also extremely important and so that if a prisoner happened to be held captive far from um a war theater right in korea where there was more food than that person uh, would have probably gotten to have more food so do we know what kind of sort of percentage of of allied prisoners uh were killed at the hands of the allies either through bombing or ships being torpedoed or whatever um a great percentage right um and i think what, what was surprising to me about that was that uh, when I was doing research in the British National Archives um, and also in U.S. at NARA, the notorious NARA, I discovered that, yes. uh, you know, you see these memos that the um, governments clearly knew that there were servicemen on, or ca- held captive on these ships and they still bombed them. And I think that that's an interesting kind of philosophical question. Um, but or another way, so part of it is bombing of transport ships, part of it is air raids on Japan that are near POW yeah. camps. Um, and this is a way that many, many people died. Gosh, wow. so they're, 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 they're collateral. And after all, the Allies are making hard-headed decisions about, you know, a ship that's out of action is out of action. It doesn't matter who or what's on it. Um, uh, so they're not, they're not going to have any compunction about doing, about doing that. Because, I mean, after all, there's a, there, there's a Brit... Come now, I think of it. There is a British witness to the Hiroshima bombing, if I remember right. Who's a prisoner of war there? You know, so or Nagasaki. I can't remember, but but either, either way, that 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 he was in Japan, which I which which is how many how many prisoners of war were brought back to Japan itself? Was that a common thing, or were they tended to be uh, imprisoned in theatre or put to work in in, in the theatre they were captured? So the way that um, the Japanese considered it, people um, men were not considered official POWs until uh, when they were held on the front. 
right? So in a theater of war. So being considered an allied prisoner of war was a special status. uh, And because that's a status that is governed by um, the the conventions that we know now as the Geneva Conventions, which they signed. Um, According to, uh, and this is clear policy by Tojo, that men were taken to where they needed to work, right? So some were taken back to Japan, but many more were taken to um, like to Southeast Asia or other places wherever labor was needed. I mean, and this is part, this is like, I think um, this is important is that Japan has these vast imperial dreams, but they don't have a plan on how to create these, this empire. And so prisoners of war just become labor for the, for the building of these dreams. We're just going to take a short break now. We'll be back with Sarah Kovner in a moment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Welcome back to We Have Ways. James and I are talking to Sarah Kovner about Japanese treatment of prisoners of war. Are, are any officers um, taken off for different treatment? And because after all, the you know the, the, the Germans have officers camps and men, and the, and a lot of the men end up working on farms and stuff like that. So are the, do, do you have that with the Japanese? Are they are the, are the officers in particular interrogated? Because we spoke to Michel Parody not so long ago about the um, about the Doolittle raid and about what happened to those guys and about the the, the, the torture <laughs> they underwent and the fact that they that they weren't immediately. Um, uh, murdered uh, as soon as they'd been captured, even though they were, you know, even though they'd flown a bombing raid on Tokyo, that would be an understandable reaction. 
to a crew of one of those bombers and that they got processed and then the, the, the and interrogated i mean does does that happen much or does it does it you know if they capture a capture someone worthy and high enough rank do they take him away and pick his brains or or is everyone lumped in together that's a good question um i heard michelle's episode i thought it was wonderful uh and i think that i think that um so (laughs) so did we i mean it was it was amazing it was it was one of those episodes where you think well this is why you should study history because here's an example of a thing of 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 sets of sets of um behavior and decision making that, that 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 spring from different places but are exactly the same it was fascinating yeah so so one they the japanese um with intention treated different prisoners differently um this isn't always the case but flyers were considered and bombers were considered war criminals right um and so that you have the example i'm not going to go over it because he did it so well or another example would be um in 1945 in may and june um air raids and bombings in fukuoka um where um the people who the the bombers who who were caught when on a plane crash they were subject to unspeakably cruel treatment um to vivisection yeah. and and things like this um god so that's one example of, yeah the vivisection is absolutely grim isn't it's it awful. i mean it's really really grim. it's like medical experiments in fact the, the the i mean that the japanese were running out of saline solution and so they did experiments on um some doctors i wouldn't say the japanese a doctor in Fukuoka um, did an experiment injecting seawater into prisoners' veins, or they murdered them with um, specially trained martial arts. So that 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 is is gruesome, and things like this happened. Yeah. Um, I'll give you another example of a totally different, in a totally different vein, which is that in Korea, groups of prisoner groups of officers were put together in propaganda camps for the Koreans. Because remember, Korea is a colony, which you know, and I've already mentioned. Um, and the idea there was to impress Korean men and women at how powerful the Japanese were because they could capture um, these these allies. And uh, they were made to march through the streets. But, so this is part of it, is impressing the Koreans, but also part of it is impressing the international community, impressing the International Committee for the Red Cross, which was allowed to inspect these camps and to see how well they were treated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so purely a prop a pure propaganda vehicle. I mean, which is which is after all an, a, a recurring um, thing with prisoners of war. You know, think of the, uh, the, that happens in the Vietnam War. Um, it, I mean, it happens o- over and over again. Um, that, that's just, I mean, this is so fascinating. I mean, I, I, like 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 I said right at the start, we we do really start with a very set a very set image of. Um, of this story and of uh, uh, and yeah and uh, like a sort of uniform idea and the fact that there the fact that there's different stuff going on and I mean were there were there so outspoken protests about the handling of um uh, of Allied prisoners of, uh, well of prisoners of war in general within the, within the Japanese military were there some people saying we absolutely cannot treat um people like this because if only because it it's going to come back to bite us on the ass if we lose or um, how are our men going to be treated if they're captured? Well, obviously, that's sort of not an option. Uh, uh, because after all, recep- re- reciprocity is a big part of, uh, it, 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 certainly in, in, it, it, traditionally in warfare. You know, you, 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 you allow the other side to surrender because if it comes to your turn and you, you don't want to be murdered, killed when you're surrendering. Do you see what I mean? That, 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 that 
there has to be this reciprocity between the two sides. Well, reciprocity, as you say, is how the whole thing works. And we see this in the uh, European case, right? Um, yeah. And so the place that you see most of that is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the diplomats, um, many of them who had a lot of experience with living in the United States or living in Britain, or um, they were well acquainted with the, the, with the international law behind treatment of prisoners of war, they yeah. protested um, this treatment. Um, but I think there's less of that in the Imperial Japanese Army. Even people like um, let, let, Tamara Hiroshi, right, who is in charge of the prisoner Informa- prisoner of War Information Bureau and Prisoner of War Management Office, which is the agency with little responsibility that was in charge of prisoners of war. Uh, had somebody like that protested the treatment of prisoners of war, then that person would have lost their job. But right. on the same side, right. though, I think one thing that we don't hear a lot about is that the Japanese actually um, did court-martials of guards who were found to, behaving, to be behaving badly. So there are something like right. 80-something cases of this. But, but, but Sarah, the, I mean, the, the, the picture that kind of haunted my childhood was that of Len Sifley about to be executed. Uh, and this is an Australian serviceman, for those who don't know, and he, he, you can see him, he's, he's, he's been blindfolded, he's on his knees, and there's a guy with a, um, with a samurai sword kind of, you know, just about to whip off his head. And, and, and there's a kind of crowd of baying Japanese soldiers. And, and, and this was... These were, this wasn't as a prison camp, I don't think. I think, if I understand rightly, you know, he was captured with a handful of others and they were summarily executed before they even got to uh, a prison camp. I think they were kind of interrogated first. So that was done by the military. And it, and it is it is the frontline troops that are doing the crucifying and the bayonet practice and the beheading. It's not That's not happening once you get to a POW camp, is it? Not in general, no. Um, I think that one of the things that's so hard... I know that I think I know the picture you're you're talking about. I've seen well, it's it's, it's kind of it's 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 the it's the picture that that has come to symbolise the fate of Allied prisoners at the hands of the Japanese and and as the kind of sort of apogee of of, of Japanese kind of horror in, in in the Second World War, I think. And and it's just you know even if you look at it today, it's still a really really shocking and horrible image. There's something so completely grotesque about beheading somebody. So especially grotesque, um, and I just remember as a boy, you know, I I had a I had a schoolmaster at my school who had fought against the Japanese in in Burma and used to tell us sort of stories over lunch, you know, of of his time in the jungle and all this sort of stuff. And we had little commando comics about you know about all this stuff. So we had a kind of sort of a vision in our mind, and I remember kind of as a very young boy, long before I was kind of particularly interested in World War Two or anything, uh, um seeing this image and just being horrified by it. I mean, you're really kind of sort of quite haunted by it. Um, and that was my bar for a very, very, very long time. So it's, so it's, it is good to kind of dispel that myth and also kind of add a but, whole layer of nuance to all of this. But but does that, that incident fit into the sort of the heat of the front line that, that, yeah, I you think know, it probably does, doesn't it? That, that, that those, that, that when there's been, when there's been fighting and some of the Japanese Guys, friends will have been mates will have been killed in the fighting, and it's that you know you you you, you there's a, I think there is an acknowledgement now I think far more that that does happen and that sometimes units reach the point where they're not going to they're not going to take any prisoners on this occasion because they're you, for, for a multitude of re- reasons and does that incident probably fit into that pattern or is it or is it 
I mean, it's the sword maybe that makes it so that makes it stick out and appear so foreign and out of, as it were, an alien and out of time, if nothing else. Yes, because that's the that's the fate of Anne Boleyn, isn't it? And, yeah, and yeah, various yeah, yeah, other yeah. people through history that we all studied at school. And here it is in kind yeah. of vivid yeah. photographic detail of yeah. something that's yeah. far more recent rather than something yeah. from the, you know, Tudor or Middle Ages. So yeah. what I'd say to is that I think that uh, the, there are interesting questions about why that picture came to be the dominant representation um, and yeah. how it came to be that people who had those experiences became the only voices, the ones that, that we hear. Um, and yeah. so that is really interesting to me. In fact, some of the narratives we're most familiar with here in the U.S. about um, the, the the Taunt Death March were shaped by journalists um, rather than being the experiences that people had. At the same time, that happened, and we know that happened in, in several places. And I would go more with the idea that of the heat of battle. Um, I, I don't know for sure, but uh, I think I, I, in a class, I teach a class on war and captivity, and we've talked about this a lot where we look at POWs through time, and we see that even recently. People who are fighting on the front should not be put in charge of prisoners of war. Yes, well, the, yeah, the, I mean, we, we've, had, we've had all sorts of scandals here with, with people in Afghanistan, you know, uh, uh, well, and now Australian soldiers, and now and now the Australian SAS are experiencing a, 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 exactly that kind of scandal too. Um, I mean, it, it, it is it is difficult though, isn't it? Because after all, the Second World War has been portrayed, and for all sorts of good good enough reasons, as a, as a morality play in a simple way, hasn't it? That that we're the goodies, they're the baddies, um, and the. Nazis fit squarely into the latter category, as do the the Japanese in 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 lots in lots of ways. And the prisoner of war um, uh, 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 story very much feeds that impression, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Um, I think that, and that's part of why I got interested in it uh, in this story. So I, I about myself, I'm a historian of Japan. I was trained as a historian of Japan. I'm not like a world. I mean, I've always been interested in World War II, and I wrote a book on the Allied occupation, which is adjacent to the war and important in that way. But actually, yeah. so as familiar as we are with it in the U.S., maybe the prisoner of war experience less less familiar in the U.S. I think than in Britain or in Australia. Um, I think that that I, as much as I had heard about it from older people, I had never heard of anything about it in my Japanese history classes that I took as a graduate student or as um, a professor. It's just not something that we teach. And so I wanted to understand why that was. And I think that uh, there's not really, there wasn't, or there's not much of a counter narrative towards the dominant narrative that we have of the suffering of prisoners of war. Um, and I, 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 now, I want to really emphasize that that happened, right? Um, but I'm interested in understanding why it was that happened, why this yeah. is the story that we tell. Um, and so anyway, that's why I got interested yeah. in that, because I was like, where is this? How can I help? But, 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 but Sarah, things like the Bataan Death March and, and the Thai Burma Railway and, and Corregidor and all the rest of it, I mean, you know, these places at that point, you know, the, the troops have just been captured. So they're being taken from a to b or put to work sort of in the front line aren't they it's a kind of part of the war zone whereas once you go to a camp you're in a camp you're kind of away from all that to a certain extent so it does seem that i just want to sort of get that get this right a lot of the the brutality that people talk about is 
during those marches and things when they are being prodded and poked and kind of disciplined by frontline troops rather than by POW guards. Yeah, I, I, think, I think that's true. And I think that also the, um, they were in, I think that's true. I think that men who served in the Imperial Japanese Army also had to march great distances. I don't want to, I think it was a real, you, you said this earlier um, about logistics and food. And um, so I, I think you're right. I think I, uh, one thing that I am I'm interested in um, thinking about, so it's true that this happened, but why, it can't be that all, there's something in Japanese culture or something about um, Japanese people that makes them uniquely cruel. I mean, after all, the Japanese have a long history or had a long history of treating prisoners of war well in the Russo-Japanese War and other times and places. So that that's really one of the things that got me interested in this project. Fascinating. Yeah, it really uh, is, isn't it? It really, really is. And again, uh, and again, uh, uh, as you said earlier on, James, the, 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 towards the, the towards the end of the war and it's the same in germany this is that they've run out of everything they haven't got any stuff anymore so everyone's i mean the the, the truth is and the truth is, is well the u.s are trying to starve japan um out of the war aren't they yeah so and, that, and that means anyone who happens to be there and anyone happens to be as a guest of the japanese is also going to be exactly and so and quite deliberately so with an extremely effective and brutal blockade and, you know, the, one of the things we, we've talked about before is, is that, um, you know, the, the switch from the switch from mining Japanese harbours to bombing cities that the, the Air Force insisted on doing. Actually, it, it, the bombing the cities is less effective in terms of the blockade and the starving the Japanese out. But it's but it's more spectacular in it, it, it uh, on the face of it. So so in a, in a strange way, they distract themselves from this effort of trying to starve Japan out of out of the war so it's little wonder that allied prisoners are, are starving and and their ships are being sunk and their camps are being bombed it's it, it, yeah it, it's well, but also it's the, to, it's the totality of the war yeah but also you know if, you, if you're really really short of food and everyone's starving you're going to look after your own people first aren't you before a for a paw i mean that sort of stands to reason i mean i'm just thinking about about a guy he he, he who i i remember interviewing and there's no question about it. You know, the, the hardest bit of the, his POW experience in terms of the closest he came to death was on the on the ship being transported to the POW camp. Um, and obviously they were they got progressively more hungry as the years passed um, in captivity. And by the end of by the end of the war, the biggest the biggest threat was unquestionably disease, not the sadism of any guards. You know that's that's where, but but in in our in our narrative, it's all become mixed together, hasn't it? And the and the disease is just another kind of sign of the kind of woefulness of the treatment of the Japanese guards and their kind of inhumanity and blah blah blah, rather than it being practical and it just they didn't have any. Yeah, I, that you know, it's disease, it's hunger, it. Uh, I, yeah, that's a. I think that's right. Um, and you know, there were, of course, people who um, isolated examples, and we see this in Germany. We see this everywhere of, of cruel and sadistic people. Um, but it was very rough uh, because, as, as as everything that you've spoken about, the blockade and the bombing, there was a real lack of. Um, of food. But I'll tell you one other interesting thing that I discovered is in the newspaper, again, you saw Japanese men and women complaining that allied POWs in, um, in Fukuoka and Kyushu were treated better than men and women 
uh, who lived there, right? Who lived outside the gates. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really amazing. I mean, did you find it kind of a very depressing exercise doing all this research? I mean, you know, you're pouring over kind of these sort of reports of utter misery in 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 Q and uh, uh, Nara. I mean, it's bad enough going to Nara as it is <laughs> trying to work out the record system without, you know, having to actually kind of read the content of this incredibly depressing stuff. I mean, I mean, I always find it, you know, when I'm researching stuff, you know, you just sort of feel this sort of relentless kind of sort of sort of grimness, and it, it can really get to you a bit. Yes, it's really, I, I am working on my next project and I am uh, really thinking about that because it's, 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 it was awful to read, right, and to think about all the time. I mean, the first book was about, you know, was not the happiest story, but it was one with an ending that was happy in some ways. And, and this was just <laughs> like everything I read, it was, it was really, 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 and then also asked really deep moral questions that I've been wrestling with. And um, so, yeah, I would say the research process, project, process was um, extremely grim. Not to mention the art. So what, is it you're, so what is it you're doing now? Are we allowed to ask or is it a state secret? <laughs> sure. I'm working on internment in the United States, right? So the civilians who were uh-huh. interned, the Japanese and Japanese-American civilians who were interned. Right. Because we know so much, well, I, I wouldn't expect, you, you probably do, but we know so much about the internees on the West Coast. We know less about those in, um, like, in New York and um, where I live and where I'm from. Uh, and so so that's one thing that I'm interested in. It's like the other side of this story. Sarah, well, what's the, it, what's the um, uh, view of this in Japan? I mean, is this a thing you can ask about in Japan? Research, is it easy to research? Are there... Are, are there frank memoirs about this um, side of the Japanese war? Or is it a thing that's a, like a, a closed story or a closed book? I don't think it's a closed story, but it's just not one that um, is particularly interesting, considered particularly interesting or important, right? So, right, because after all, the, because because the rape of Nanking um, was incredibly controversial, wasn't it? As a as a as a as as a as a thing for Japan to face about its. About what had ha- what it what had happened in China, wasn't it? I mean, it, but that fantastically. Yeah, that wasn't a, that wasn't a jolly read, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, mean, I know, that but, was but unbelievable. Uh, yes, that. Would uh, have uh, been. <laughs> I mean, I think that there are different people, obviously, different historians who have different views and and this kind of thing, and um, so. But uh, there are only very few uh, professional historians, and they're not at the best places working on these stories. That's really um, work done by local historians. Um, which is very mm. popular in in Japan, and so you know, seventy fifth anniversary, and there just wasn't much that came out about it. Um, the way that I, I mean, so I found archival records, but I was lucky enough to speak with a few guards uh, who remain, um, who, who are luckily still with us, and so. Uh, but but I guess so. You asked about his, how do historians tell it, and I mean, really, it's it's not something. There are a couple of th- people who write about it, but it's not a really important part of the story. Right. Gosh, how fascinating! I mean, given 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 it's it's the importance it has had in our telling of the story of the war in the East, it's interesting that I mean, after all, everyone comes at all these things with completely different perspectives and and angles and uh, and and emphases, don't they? So it's absolutely fascinating because it's a, it, I mean, really, growing up in in Britain, it, it, you know, in the seventies and eighties as I did, bank holiday Monday afternoon, they would show Bridge on the River Kwai and and you were told what beasts the Japanese had been to our chaps in, 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 in terms as simple as that. 
um, re- weren't we, James? I mean, it's yeah, yeah, part of our part, yeah. of part of our cultural upbringing, part of our cultural approach to the second to the Second World War in the East. Yeah, absolutely. So and if you doubted it, and if you doubted it, just look at the picture of Len Sifley. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that that was the reference point. I, I'm just sort of. It, Oh, it's just, it's it really it's it's just so good to sort of get you thinking about all this because actually a lot of it, a, a lot of what you've been writing about, Sarah, starts to all kind of completely add up and tick boxes and make a lot of sense, you know. And you're you're what you've done so brilliantly is sort of disentangle, kind of, the myth from the kind of actual practical reality of it, you know, which is, you know, the two things are very different and also separate kind of you know what is happening kind of frontline in the jungles or you know in the you know at the cold face of the war to to what's happening back at these camps and the must you know i know there were sort of hundreds of them weren't they all over the place and 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 as ever i mean that this is always the thing that you see the similarities similar similarities in the theaters and then the differences that 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 uh, uh, where the emphasis lie and the different you know because after all both germany and japan I, I mean, was, I thought it was really interesting what you said, that they have this I dream of an empire, but they don't really have a plan. And I think you can apply that to, the, to, to, to Germany as well. You know, that, that they have this they have this idea that they want this empire. But when you when you the moment you push into what Hitler's ideas and plans actually are for the for the thing, they're all completely ridiculous. And then all the agencies agencies within Nazi Germany are all competing with each other, for, you know, for bandwidth, supremacy, their ideas getting through. Uh, and so on and it, uh, uh, to hear that it to hear that there's a similar complexity and a similar mosaic in a thing we've been taught as a mono what we've received rather than been taught we've received as a monolithic story is really really interesting it's utterly fascinating thank you yeah. so much yeah no thank you I, yeah <laughs> so every day's a school day oh god I, I, um, someone joked on our twitter feed the other day that gradually um by listening to the podcast they were picking up a master's degree in military history and um <laughs> and i feel the same my my head is expanding my global understanding of this thing and the different perspectives and the onion the, the onion peel of the second world war is um the mosaic it's never ending the, yeah, the pieces mosaic. The thank, mosaic. your podcast yeah. is exactly. terrific you s- i love it <laughs> uh, oh thank you so much oh, you're saying well, you, things. you can come yeah, back you, used to, you meant to say that at the beginning <laughs> yeah, yeah well but I, I really i really think it's great <laughs> Oh, thank you very oh, well, much. Thank you. Well, well, thanks for joining us, Sarah. Um, uh, and uh, 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 thanks for listening, everybody. See you all soon. Cheerio. Thank you. Cheerio. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) 
Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.